says, come, rivers of living water. He that believeth, Scripture has said. Let's uh, turn to Revelation 19. I'm going to look at some things in 19, and then when we go to chapter 20, I'm just going to just read out of the ESV and just comment as I, as I go, because chapter 20 is pretty self-explanatory with most of it. Uh, in chapter 18, I want to read a few verses, and again, I'm reading from the ESV. This is dealing with Babylon. We talked about Babylon. We talked about the fall of the world system and all that's de- that deals with uh, the religious, economic, and so on, Babylon. But in verse 14, it says, The fruit for which your soul longed, it's talking about those that the merchants, those who put their stock and their life was actually in the world system, in Babylon. That's what their whole thrust in life was. And you see that you know, today very clearly with people What's the focus of their, of their heart? What's the focus of their life? And you can see with many, it's money, making money, business, and, and so on. And, and that's their thing. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, and all the delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. That which they have placed the emphasis in their life, that which they longed for and wanted, God's going to take it out of the way when he judges Babylon. The merchants of these, of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. In a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste. All the shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors, and all those uh, whose trade is on the sea stood afar off and cried as they saw the smoke of her burning. So that was chapter 18 dealing with that. Now when you move over to chapter 19, as I said last week, you have a transition from the judgment of God on Babylon religious Babylon and uh, economic Babylon, the world system, and and so on. Now you see a transition to something else. And now in chapter 19, verse 7, And let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to Him. He's the one who deserves the honor for all that He's done in your life. If you have allowed the Lord to work in you, if you are walking with Him and you have seen over a period of time, over years, the faithfulness of the Lord, you've seen the hand of God at work in you, you've seen the things that He has changed that could not be changed any other way, all you can say is glory be unto Him. So in this verse here, let us be glad and rejoice and give honor unto Him. For the marriage of the Lamb is come. And see, the wife cannot, cannot take credit for being what she has become. All she can do, as we can do now, today, here in this life, is surrender to Him, allow Him to do what He wants to do, and draw us on. 
But she becomes what she becomes because of him, because of Jesus Christ. And it says here that the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. Now, in, before we continue on here, in Jude, hold your place there. There's one verse in Jude here, verse 23. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating, and this is what I want you to see, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. So there is to be in the life, in the heart of the Christian, a hatred for the garment that is stained by the flesh. One's garment can be corrupted or can be corrupt. And you see that in various portions of Scripture. And we're not going to take the time to look at that. But a garment can be what it should be, clean and white, pure raiment, or it can be what it should not be. It can be tainted, touched, stained, however you want to say that, by the flesh. And so back in Revelation 19, in verse 8, it says here, And it was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen. Now the reason that it is granted unto her is, is what you see preceding this in chapter, in chapter in verse 7, where it says that his wife hath made herself ready. Active voice. See, she did something. She didn't do the work, but she did her part. Remember, you have to remember that God will always do his part if we do our part. So she, through the Spirit working in her, has made herself ready. That was the condition now in order for her to be granted what he's going to give her. So to her was granted or given that she should be arrayed in fine linen. Now here's the, the, the thing I want you to see. For the fine linen, well he uses the word clean and white, but we'll come back to that. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. That's what it says in the King James. Let me write this on a board. Now, this is not the, the righteousness. When he says the righteousness of saints, it's not talking about the righteousness that was imputed unto us because of faith. If you look in the Strong's, you'll see this word righteous here means righteous acts. And I like the Thayer's meaning for this. And I don't want to write it down. You can write this down. Thayer's meaning for the word righteous in this verse is that which is in accordance with what God requires. In the ESV, it says, For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints, which actually is a better translation. It's righteous deeds or righteous acts. But in um, verse 8, it also says this, that her fine linen, she was arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. See, that reflects the quality of the righteous acts. Now look in verse 14 for a minute. And the armies which were in heaven followed him, meaning Jesus, upon white horses clothed in fine linen, white and clean. So you see that again, the same idea. There, there is a garment that is to be clean, white. It's talking about purity. It's talking about 
uh, being cleaned up and, and what have you. Now, in I'll read this verse. You can turn there in the King James, Revelation 3. But I want to read this from another translation, the New Living, because it really says exactly what the word righteous acts that we're seeing here in verse 8, in Revelation 19. It says this, this is Revelation 3, 2. Wake up, strengthen what little remains, for even what is left is almost dead. I find that your actions, now listen, do not meet the requirements of my God. So there is to be a heart in the Christian that will do that or be that which is in accordance with what God requires. Now, we're not necessarily talking about what the Bible is saying, although that, that can apply. But it is as the Lord or how the Lord comes to you personally and shows you something, however he does that, that is you're, what you're to walk in, what you're to function in, what you're to do, how you are to act toward an individual or whatever it may be. And so that now becomes what God requires for you and myself personally, big or small, doesn't matter. And when we do that, we are agreeing with him, and we do that, that will become a righteous act, what God requires. And we always think of works, and works that can apply to works. But when he says the righteous acts, it's not necessarily meaning your works, although your works are involved. But remember, the works are to be an extension of what he is doing or has done in your heart. So you can go down to the soup kitchen and stand in line and give them a ladle of soup and do it begrudgingly and doing it out of the will of God or whatever, and it means nothing. It's, it's not just the work. It's how you are responding to the Lord first, to Him, and then how you respond in that which He is showing you to do, both of them. So for, work, for works to be what they are to be. But this righteous acts is just that which God requires. God will require things of you. And it may be something simple. You know, like give your kid a hug. I mean, just simplify. Be, be nice. Have a nice attitude toward this individual because nobody else does. You ever run into somebody that everybody hates? They can't stand them. Nobody wants to be around them. Nobody wants to talk to them. Everybody talks about them. And so the Lord says, okay, I want you to be nice to that individual. And you don't even want to be nice to that individual because you can't stand them sometimes. <laughs> well, I don't know if you're running anybody like that, but they're around. So God is showing you the way you are to act toward them, the way your attitude should be. And so now that's something he's requiring. And as that is in you, you start to move in that, then that becomes a righteous act. You fulfill that. And so, read the verse again. Let's, let's go back there to Revelation 19. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen. And by the way, that is um, subjunctive mood, which means should be arrayed. It means that, that, that that's possible. It's, there's has a potential for everyone to be arrayed. 
in fine linen. But it's not a guaranteed thing. And the reason it's not a guaranteed thing is because the individual has to cooperate with the Lord. That, that's why it's not a guaranteed thing. And it's also what they call a middle voice verb. There's no middle voice in English, but in, in Greek there's a middle voice verb. And a middle voice verb means that the person doing the action does it for their benefit. So those who do the action, what action are we talking about here? Doing that which is required by God, that's the action. And when you do that, you are doing something for your benefit. And of course, it's talking about your spiritual benefit. Now listen, read it again. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Or we'll say it this way. For the fine linen, that she's going to be arrayed in this, okay, the fine linen is that which is done in accordance to God's will, what God requires. So you see how important it is to move in what God requires of you. Because when you do that, you are cooperating with the Spirit of God, and He is placing a garment in spirit upon you. Nobody's seeing it, you see. Nobody knows it. But it is granted unto you to be arrayed. And that's just not a future thing. It is now and future, I believe. You can't just go there and it's going to happen there. See, you have to qualify. You have to be arrayed. There's certain things that have to take place. You have to be ready. So she hath made herself ready. And then you move on now because... Whoever they were that fulfilled that, they actually did what was required of them. Then they were, they were arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. Clean and white is telling you something that's telling you that there is a quality about that. So there is to be quality. See, the bride of Christ will have a quality about her that the Spirit of God will have brought to pass in her life. That is why she is clean and white. So you don't say, well, I guess I'll just take a bath before I die, so I, when I go before the Lord, I'll be clean. Well, that doesn't work that way. So there, there can be a contaminated garment, and there can be that which you know, should be. Okay, um, and in Revelation 3, 4, if you'll remember, I don't remember what church this was. Was it Sardis? It says... Thou hast a few names, oh yes, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments. So you see this in various parts of Scripture, but dealing with the churches there, you see it. Why would Jesus say such a thing, that they have not defiled their garment? And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. You see that? They will walk, and they do walk, in a different manner than some. Some in Sardis defiled their garments. These, he says, did not. They were walking in a different way spiritually than those who have defiled their garments. Do you see that? Today there are Christians who walk a certain way that they do not defile their garments as compared to, as Jesus did in Sardis, those who do walk a different way and are 
are defiling their garments. Now, see, that becomes a personal thing, even in a church. It doesn't matter, a church, a group, national, international. It's all, you know, it's an individual thing. And so we have more power than we think. Do you know you have power? You have the power to walk in the will of God. You have the power to walk in a way that you keep your garment clean. See, God, God's not going to intervene in that. The power that you and I have is the power of our will. And we, we, des and we desire to go that way, or we'll desire to go our own way. That's why we teach this stuff so much, because it's so important. In uh, Deuteronomy is it 28, 27, 28, 29, where it talks about, I have set before you this day, I think it's 28, life and death. God does that all the time. Choose life and you shall live. And all these blessings will come. Choose death, you're going to be in trouble. Well, basically, it's, it's the same now. It's no different. So we have the power to walk the way we walk. Who makes you to walk the way you walk as a Christian? God. No, he doesn't. Yeah, we have a lot to say in that. That's why, as I said, we teach so much about this. You know, are you going to go your way or God's way? Because it's important. You have to spell that out. You have to put it out there for Christians so that they can see the difference. So that when the time comes and there's this critical thing in their life, they'll choose, hopefully, to walk with God. Even if they have to suffer the loss of what they want. Oh, well, that's the gospel. Sorry. Jesus never apologized, did he? Jesus said it the way it was. Jesus preached it the way it was. Jesus told them all, are you going to leave me now? Uh, you know, I'll tell you this, I'm telling you the truth. It's getting a little tough. Are you going to leave me? And Peter said, where am I going to go? You have the words of life. So there's always that heart with all of us, I believe, that wants to go another way. We need to know what it is God is requiring and not make excuses for trying to do what we want to do because we're all good at that. We all can do that. I think it's the will of God for me to you know, not teach anymore. I think it's time for me to sit down. Well, he's not letting me off the hook. Sometimes I wonder, Lord, should I even teach? And I know where that comes from. <laughs> now, you're not dealing with that, most of you. But you'll deal with something else. You'll say, Lord, I think it's time for me to do such and such. <laughs> Just be careful. Be careful. Let the Lord lead you. You'll never, ever, 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 ever be dissatisfied with him and with the outcome, with the result. You may not want to do something, you know, but the outcome will be spiritual growth and maturity in your life. And it will be a garment that's clean and white. He will do things and is doing things within that many Christians are not aware of. Now, we don't see behind the veil. No, we, we should in certain things, but many times we don't. So in Revelation 3, and I believe I mentioned this, but we'll just, I'll give you a couple of scriptures. How do you obtain 
this fine linen, this wedding garment that we're seeing in, in Revelation 19, 8. Well, in Revelation 3, 5, it says, He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. So tell me, what is uh, the requirement there for being clothed in white raiment? What is it? Now, I'm just showing you the word. <laughs> Don't get mad at me. You have to overcome. That's what Jesus says. That's one of the requirements. And that, that doesn't mean that if you fail and you don't overcome, that you don't qualify for the garment. That's not what that means, you know. See, there is to be in, in the spirit, in your spirit, a heart that desires to overcome and goes as far as possible to overcome, See, whatever that may be. And don't think that you do not have what you need to overcome what is before you. If you depend upon yourself, you will never overcome. If you depend on Jesus, you can overcome. And I don't know what overcoming means for you. You know, everybody, it, it, it means different things at different levels and stages of growth. So what you overcome and have to deal with today, 10 years from now, you'll say, why was it such a big deal? It was really nothing. But this here now in front of me is so big. But you find out that after you go through certain things, that the Lord just does something in you. you know, he puts something in you that you really don't even understand. And you have the ability to overcome things that you never could overcome before. But remember, you have to depend upon him because you cannot do it yourself. You start looking to yourself or towards someone else, Forget it. No one has the strength in and of themselves to overcome anything. But in Christ, I can do all things through Christ, what? Yeah. Who, who strengthens me, see? So, if you want to, if you really, really want to, you can overcome. But what happens a lot of times is our will in it falters. Our will is not as resolved. And there are times when you have to be resolved because of, you know it may be a difficult thing, very difficult thing for you. Sometimes things it's easy to overcome. You know, it's not as hard, put it that way. Other times with certain things it becomes uh, I don't want to say a chore because a chore isn't quite strong enough. <laughs> It becomes some very, really a, a real strenuous spiritual thing to overcome, but that's okay. That's how you grow. That's how you'll grow. If you know, if you never use your arm at all, okay, ever, what happens to the muscle? It atrophies. But if you're lifting occasionally, and I'm not talking about lifting weights, just lifting anything, your muscles being used, you know, it, it doesn't atrophy. You need to be exercised in spiritual things, or you're going to atrophy. You know, you're, you're not going to go forward. In the physical, we understand that, but in the spiritual, sometimes Christians don't grasp that. Now, not every, that everything, not every, all the time, every time, every day is not a test. It's not always 
overcoming everything. But I'm talking about a specific thing that may come. Now, of course, you have to walk and function in the world, and you have to overcome certain things. And, and that should be second nature to you. I mean, you should be able to you know, go to work or wherever, and lots, uh, most of the stuff doesn't touch you because you're walking with God. You're walking in a different place. But then you have the thing that comes. Then now that is a bothersome thing, and you have to you know, get victory in that. And it can be something as simple as your attitude towards somebody. You know, ever, ever, ever had an attitude towards somebody at work? Never. Mm. <laughs> right. Well, what do you think he's there, he or she's there around you for? God controls everything out there in the universe, all the stars he has moving. You know, all things work together for good, but not this, because it's touching me. It's not, this can't get no good out of this. Well, our attitude sometimes you know, really needs tweaked or needs adjusted. We think we're doing so well, you know, I'm doing so good and everything is fine, and then all of a sudden you get broadside. Where did that thing come from? And you have to step back and say, okay, Lord, now what? Well, you may have to overcome what you'd really like to say to that person or really like to do to that person. <laughs> well, you know, there's all kind of areas of overcoming. That's just one little one. So. And then uh, in chapter 3, verse 18, still the question, how do you obtain this fine linen, this, this wedding garment? Jesus says, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire. See, buy of me, buy of me, you have to purchase that. And white raiment. So you need to buy white raiment. How are you going to buy white raiment? You're going to take out your wallet and start peeling off the 20s? Well, I won't get too far. I probably don't even have, I hardly ever have more than $20 in my wallet. <laughs> Most of the time it's just a couple. So I can't buy it that way. How are you going to buy white raiment? Well, that's one way, yes. But I could sum it up in a very, very simple way. Through your obedience, so you will purchase gold, you will purchase white raiment through your obedience. Look at, um, well, you don't have to look there. Let me just turn there. I'll read this from the ESV. Isaiah 55. And did we read this before in another class? I don't remember. Isaiah 55, 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the water. And that's nice, isn't it? And he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? See, the Christian... A carnal Christian will spend his money, his time, his efforts to buy that which is not satisfying. You know, he's moving, his heart is toward the world. That's why he's a carnal a Christian, he or she, a carnal Christian. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me. See, there's the obedience. Listen, listen. 
and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear. See, when you incline your ear, that means that you are to obey the Lord. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant and so on and so forth. So in, in this portion of scripture, it says, come by without money. And then he says, listen, be diligent here. He's talking about your obedience there, see. And so you purchase that which you will be dressed in by your obedience. You're going to buy it. Not with money. Not maybe even with your time, although that may be true. But just your time alone won't do it. A person can donate all their time to do all these things that look spiritual, and that may not be. Have we not prophesied? Have we not cast out devils? Have we not done many, many wonderful works? Well, I didn't know, know you in those. So that you gave your time to this, to, to casting out devils, but that's not what I wanted for you. And so you really didn't purchase what you needed to purchase. You did what you thought. Back in Revelation 19. Or wait, let's stay in Revelation, where were you, 3.18? Go to 4.4. 4. Now, in Revelation, just dealing with, with some of the things we've seen in st study before, you see white raiment in different places. In 4.4, 4, and round about the throne were four and twenty seats, and upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting clothed in white raiment. So the 24 elders are seen here in white raiment, and that was a result of overcoming, which testifies to their inner quality. See, when you see that raiment, it's, you probably think of some white robe, but that's not it. It's testifying or showing the quality of the individual. See, it's, it's clear, it's white. There's a quality about it. In uh, Revelation 6, verse 11, And white robes were given unto every one of them, and so on and so forth. And those, it's talking about those who were martyred there for the word of God. White robes were given to every one of them. There's, there's a degree of character involved there, you see. In chapter 7, verse 9, After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, and so on and so forth. And it goes down and it talks about um, they had white, white robes. Now, I'm not saying that these robes here are the wedding garment, but I'm just pointing out to you that there are those in different places in Revelation that have this, this clothing. And I believe that there are, and I'll, I'll just say it, I believe that there are those who have a quality that is above others. And we'll see that when we get on here in chapter 19. Now remember, it doesn't matter what you're doing. I mean, not everybody teaches. God doesn't call everybody to teach. It's not about teaching. See, it's about doing what the Lord is showing you. That's all. It's not about any particular thing. It's not about what people say 
ministry, quote unquote. It's not about that. It's about doing that which God requires from the individual. We say that we have a personal salvation, a personal experience with Jesus Christ, and it becomes very personal because it is personal, and what he requires, he'll require on a personal level, and that which he requires will most likely be different than the person next to you, most, most likely. So it's not about ministry, as people would think. It's not about necessarily teaching or any of that. Preaching, that's not it. It's what is he showing and requiring of you? Well, the only thing I know that the Lord you know, is, is showing me is that I should get up early in the morning and do dishes and keep the house clean. Whatever it is, it doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm raising this little baby. It doesn't matter. It's not about ministry and doesn't have to appear spiritual. You, you understand what I'm saying? A lot of things that don't appear spiritual are very important because it's what God may be requiring for that individual. And there are no less than someone else who's teaching. So you get all that stuff out of your mind. That, that's, you know, it's cloud, it clouds things up. Bring it down to where the Bible talks about it, you know, what God is requiring for you. And that's it. In, see, we read 7, 9, 7, 14. And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest, for he said unto me, These are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white. So there you have a washing. There you have a white ro robe, a white raiment. And one of the methods here of that was tribulation. I don't think that God's limited to one particular thing. He, he's not limited to one circumstance in your life or in the life of, of these. He'll use whatever. You're not in the same circumstance you were in 10 years ago, are you? Well, maybe you are. But most likely, after 10, 15, 20 years, the circumstance changes, or the individual in them has been changed so much by the Lord that the circumstance is totally different, even though they're in the same thing. It just has no power over them anymore like it did. Do you understand? And so the Lord, he's really something. You can be under the power of something, and you overcome, and maybe five years later, maybe ten minutes later, now the circumstance isn't upon you. You're upon it, so to speak. And it doesn't affect you anymore like it did five years ago or ten years ago. But most people don't stay in the same circumstance long term, you know, 20, 30 years. So that's always changing. It's always changing. And so God's not limited to what he can do in a Christian's life through one circumstance. It's going to take most likely multiple circumstances throughout your life. And remember, the children of Israel, they failed, and they went around the same area in the desert for how many years was it? Forty. Forty. Hmm. Don't think that can't happen to a Christian. A Christian could fail something, and then, and I, in, in my experience... Now, I don't know about anybody else's experience, but I have experienced where I failed in something something, and marched around, so to speak, 
and come back. God brought me back to the same thing another time, and I was able to pass the test and move on. But we don't want to get stuck in this area where our whole life we're going in the wilderness and there's nothing being accomplished. Oh, we're Christians. We're going to go to heaven, and I can't wait to you know, go to heaven. Forget about it. Forget about that stuff. That's not going to do you any good, that type of thinking. I mean, we're going to go to heaven. If you walk with God, there's not going to be any place in the entire universe and beyond that God can put you. So don't worry about it. You're going to end up there anyway. What does he want today? What is he doing today? How am I to, to react in these? And what is he going to teach me? And, and how is he going to build in me through these things? And don't get mad at every single person around you, please. It's easy to sometimes, huh? but don't. If you do, apologize. But that's not it. You know, we have some moving to do spiritually, and I mean moving on. And it will take various circumstances for the Lord to do certain things in us. And he'll, he'll dress you as you're going, which is nice. Okay, um, let's go back to Revelation 19. Now, this here is key to what we're going to look at in chapter 21. And when we get to chapter 21, I, I might come back and just read these verses, a couple of these verses again, just to refresh our memory and then continue on. But in verse 9 here now, it says, And he, that's, he that saith unto me, write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the word called there, of course, means to ask a person to accept offered hospitality. So you are asked. Every Christian is asked or invited. But I like the Amplified's rendering of this part of the verse because it's really, I believe, says what, what the, the verse is saying here. It says here, envied are those who are summoned, envied. So those that have responded to the call to the marriage and actually appear there in a garment, the right garment, not stained, those are the ones that he is saying here, I believe, uh, blessed or envied. They will be envied by those who maybe were carnal, those who had the world as the emphasis. There's all types of emphasis that we can put our hearts upon. You know that. I mean, we could be involved in a number of hobbies. I mean, there's no end to the things that are out there now. I mean, just one little area, like one individual I know, he flies radio control planes. He's been doing it for years and years and years. And the the, the he's talking about all these things, and it's like there's no end to it. There's just like, it's such a broad area that you would have to go in there, and it would take you years and years and years to learn about just that one hobby. You could take easy five, six, eight years studying, I mean studying about all these servos and different props and all these things about planes, how to build them, how to fly them, different radio control units, and so on, different frequencies, 
the way they re react and, and, and the, the, the sky when you're flying them, how certain things interfere with them and how you go to 2.4 gigahertz because of the milliseconds between it jumps from channel to channel in every two milliseconds that you won't have any interference by anything around. So it's, a not, it's just this big area you can devote, devote your whole life to. And that's just one, one. There are thousands, thousands, thousands. You can give your whole life to that. That can be the emphasis of your life. Oh, quilting. That's all I want to do is quilt. Oh, sewing. Now, I said that for some of you women. We always pick on the men. Well, some of you probably don't care about that. <laughs> but there's always a hobby. There's always some interest, is my point, that you can give yourself to, can be the emphasis of your life. And then what happens is you end up I don't want to say bankrupt, but you end up with very, very little at the end of this life. And we're on our way out, all of us here. It's not going to be long. We're going to be gone. Wouldn't you say, brother? We're on our way out of here. So we need to draw close to him and allow him to do what he wants to do in our life, the best that we can you know, do that, however. So he says here that... <clears throat> Envied are those who are called, and actually, uh, I believe this is referring to being called and responding to the call, not just the call. But he says called here. Well, you, you know, you're blessed if you're called. That's true, too. But the ones that are truly blessed and will be envied are those who are called and that they respond to that call and find themselves there in, in that place. Uh, it says in 2 Thessalonians 2.14, Whereunto he called you by our gospel, for what reason, Paul? To the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he says you are called by the gospel, but remember it says that many are called, but few become choice. Why? Why only few become choice? What's the determining factor there? Is it God? Because God says, okay, I want you to be a choice vessel and you not to be a choice vessel. Is God making that decision? Absolutely not. Many are called, few become choice because of the emphasis of their life, their will, what they wanted, the direction they took, and all that. All those different things. It's not just one thing. It's multiple things that are involved in that. And all those things become the sum, how you have set your heart, how you have moved in this life, toward what have you moved? You will become the sum of all those different decisions. That's what you will be. And, and I mean, we don't really stop and think about these things. But if your heart and your emphasis in life, now we know, I always say this, but you know you have to go to work and you have to do the, the normal things. But still, in your, in your heart, where is your heart? Does it go uh, to what? Observe that once in a while. You know, is, is your heart focused on this or that? or Is it focused on Jesus, or focused on church? What, what's going on with your heart, with my heart? We have the ability to stop, so to speak, and step back and observe. And if we do that, we will see, hopefully, the Lord will reveal to us 
what is going on with our individual heart. And the reason it's so good to do that is because now we'll be able to see and gauge what is going on so that if the emphasis is misplaced, we will be able to get back on the right track. I mean, have you ever thought, I'd like to take a vacation from God? Have you ever thought, I'd like to take a vacation from church? Have you ever thought, I'd like to take a vacation from the Bible? Have you ever thought, I'd like to take a vacation from listening to all this stuff? <laughs> oh, man. Well, I don't know. The Lord is interested in you. He's interested in your heart. And I think that, and don't take this the wrong way and run with this, please. I think that the Lord thinks it's all right for you to step back and take a little vacation sometime. What happens a lot of times is when people do that, they backslide. <laughs> it's true. So if in your heart you really still want God, you might just you might say, okay, just relax. Okay, it's over now. <laughs> relax over. Okay, let's go on. <laughs> but see, the Bible talks about resting. You are to be resting in God as you walk. You know that? God has done... When you go back in Genesis and you read Genesis, it talks about all the different things God did. He did a lot in six days, didn't he? Now, I don't know if they're 24-hour days. It doesn't seem that they are. But anyway, he did a lot. And then the seventh day, what? What did God do the seventh day? He rested. Okay. So it, Paul talks about the sab this Sabbath rest. Now, has God done anything in your heart and life? Absolutely. Has God done things throughout the ages now in the lives of people? Yes, he has. Throughout the world today, has God done a lot in people's hearts and lives? Yes. So it seems to me as though God has done more in this heart of, or this, this attitude of rest than he did in creation. He's doing a lot more. So what that tells me is that you and I should be able to walk and function and do whatever it is but in rest, inner rest. So it be, doesn't become this big chore. You're not all stressed about everything. Maybe nobody gets stressed, I don't know. But you don't have to be that way. You can walk with him. And, you know, some people get so upset and excited about little things that, dealing with the Bible and the Lord. You don't have to worry about this stuff. Let him do what he's going to do in your life. It's that simple. Don't get all in a, you know, uproar and just say, Lord, bring me into rest and let me walk with you in that rest. Now, I remember, now, I don't know if you can relate to this, but there were times when the Lord called me to speak and I was in anything but rest. It's much, much better to speak and to teach at rest than being all uptight. Someday when some of you are in front of people and you're teaching, you'll understand that. But it doesn't have to be that. You can be all out of rest doing just about anything. But the Lord wants us to just relax, take a breath, and just walk with Him. It's not a chore 
It's not a big thing and a big deal. Just go about your business, do your work, go wherever, and just be at rest and just let come what comes and deal with it as it comes. How much easier could I make it? And it is that easy, actually. So he says here in verse 9, And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. And, and I, I guess he's referring even back to verse 7, 8, and 9. All of that. These are the true sayings of God. Verse 10. And I felt... Now, th- this is... John is being shown this by the angel. Now, what did I say about the word angel in the end of chapter 1 when we talked about the angel to the church of Philadelphia? Okay, what does the word mean? Messenger. You have to remember that. So you have to go in, when you look at the majority of the places in the Old Testament is talking about an angel. Uh, a lot of places in the New Testament is talking about angel. But remember, the word means messenger, angelos. And it can be an angel it can be a messenger, it can be a pastor, whomever. Now, verse 10, John, now remember, John, three and a half years walked with Jesus, very close. He laid his head upon Jesus' breast. He was the one that followed him closer when it came to the cross. So the relationship that John had seems to be closer than all or most of the disciples. This time in Revelation, where he's on the Isle of Patmos, it seems that, now I looked at different sources a while back, and it could possibly be anywhere from, he could be possibly anywhere from 50 to 80 years old or, or older. So you figure that he has walked with God for many, many, many years, personally with Jesus, right? Walked with God for, let's say, 50 years. When you walk with the Lord for 50 years, you can really draw close to him. You, you'll know the Lord when he's around you, won't you? Well, you should. You come to the church service, and when the Lord comes in the, in the presence of God, you, you recognize that, don't you? The Spirit of the Lord moves, you recognize that. You know. You might not know everything, but you know that that's the Lord. So here you have this apostle who is very, very close to Jesus, very close. Now, verse 10, And I fell at his feet to worship him, and he said unto me, See thou do it not, I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. He has to tell John, Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. This individual, and this wasn't an angel, by the way, This individual was so much like the Lord that John, with all his closeness to the Lord, could not tell the difference. That's why he falls down to worship him. That's amazing to me. It's amazing that the Lord can work like that in any man's life or woman's life. And I don't believe that this is going to be an isolated case. There are going to be those who are very, very Christ-like, very Christ-like. And so John, he falls down to worship. Now, John knew better, right? John wouldn't fall down to worship a man, would he? No, he wouldn't do that. Why would he fall down to worship him? Do it not. Do it not. 
I am thy fellow servant. Let me read this from another translation. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. He's holding the testimony of the Lord in his heart and life. It's not an angel. Okay. Oh, okay. It's okay. So anyway, John sees this and he thinks that this is the Lord, which is to me quite something, quite something. So think about this. What is available to you and I? We don't really realize it. We do not grasp the significance of this. That you can become, now I'm not talking about your, your faults and your failures. We all have them. But you can go past your faults and failures, and the Lord can work in your life and my life to make you Christ-like. He can put the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember we talked about the seven spirits and the purpose of that? sent forth to all the earth, he can begin to put that in us. And if he does, we will become more Christ-like than we ever thought. And that goes for any Christian, not just us, anybody. So what is available to us is beyond what we can really, really uh, grasp. It's far, far beyond that. But as long as you have some idea of what he wants to do, so that you can just surrender your hands. Like, like uh, John, isn't, wasn't it John? Or is it Peter? He said, stretch forth your hands and I will take you where you, where you don't want. I think it was Peter. Where you don't want to go. Hmm. I'll, I'll say this. I never, ever had a desire to leave the country, ever. So when I was called to go to the mission field, I really didn't really want to go. I didn't, and I had no idea what was awaiting me, but I had a sneaky suspicion what was waiting me. <laughs> oh, you want to preach? You want to teach? Okay, well, let's put something in you, and it was really, really exciting. You know, like the last time I went to Peru, I met a fellow that I grew up with, and uh, he, he was a friend of mine when I uh, accepted Christ when I came to the Lord. And he went his way, I went my way, and I met him at the airport. Uh, he was flying to another city. He says, what are you doing here? I says, I'm going on a mission field. He says, are you? I, he says, where are you going? I says, to the uh, headwaters of the Amazon down in Peru. He says, oh, how exciting. I was thinking, <laughs> it's exciting because you're not going. <laughs> So the Lord says, stretch forth your hand. Now, there's people that have gone on the mission field, and it's been a really great experience for them. I mean, not that mine wasn't, but not everybody has to go through some of the things that other people go through. Sometimes it's a really, 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 really exceptionally good. But mine always seemed to be a real test. Uh, like the, the first time I was expecting, say, what's the Lord going to do the first time on the mission field? Maybe you'll have it nice and easy for me, you know? One thing after the other happened, and then we, we went cross-country. It takes four hours on, I mean, windy, mountainous roads like you would you never seen ever before through these volcan volcanoes, big vol 
peaks and these roads go down like this. They do these horseshoes constantly. It takes a bus driver four hours to go from the capital to the second largest city where we were going to have a seminar. And this man made it. There's no guardrails. No guardrails. And there's 100, 200, 300 foot drop-offs. And, and there's no shoulder of the road is about this big. Okay? And I, I can't explain to you what happened. You, you go down, there's a car in front of you, the car coming this way, and the bus goes right in the middle. Both cars have to part. They go on this shoulder of the road and this shoulder of the road, and they're almost over the cliff, and the bus driver goes right down the middle. It took them two and a half hours. And it was the most harrowing experience I have ever had in a vehicle. And it was funny because, I don't know why we're going off here, but I will anyway. I was the last person on the vehicle. Last person. So there was only one seat left. Now, I was there with another pre preacher, a uh, pastor from Pittsburgh, and a friend of mine who goes down there, who's a missionary, and myself. And they, they went on the bus before me, and there was one seat left. The whole, the whole bus was full. And when I sat in the seat, and I'm thinking this is a four-hour ride, right? I sat in the seat. The seat went back, because the back was broken. So I couldn't put any of my weight back. And I had to hold myself up for two and a half hours, and I, and I was going, boom, boom, boom. This guy was going, it was crazy. But it was, it was, I was sitting there, and people, people that ride these buses all the time down there were afraid. They were gasping, and <gasps> they were almost crying, and I was there in the peace of God, and I had a smile on my face, and I was enjoying the whole ride. <laughs> Call me crazy. But see, that was my first, I hadn't even been in the country for a half a day. Or it was one day. So, you know, what it is, you never know what the Lord's going to, you know, do. Now, why did we go there? I don't remember. <laughs> what scripture were we looking at? <laughs> oh, okay. I got it now. See, so the different things that you go through, if you are at rest and you go through them in God, he can do things in you through them. But if I'm going to say, well, hey, I'm not going to stretch forth my hands and allow you, Lord, to take me there. Now, other people have gone down there to work, and it was no big deal. Everything went ran so smooth. But the Lord was looking for you know, a time for me there. And I had a time, quite a time. And I'll share some other things someday, maybe. But it was very, very good. You cannot understand what the Lord does until you go out like that. You can't. All you think of is your security here at home. You think, I'll never go on the mission field. I don't want to go on the mission field. But you never experience the hands of God, how they come up under you, and you are almost being carried everywhere you go. You, you sense that God has a purpose in everything. And it's just, I, I don't know. I, I can't explain it to you. you. You experience something that you never experienced. Now, if we were in the United States and there was anarchy throughout the whole country and you know everything was just chaos, then we would either be afraid to death, which is probably what most Christians would be, or we would allow the Lord 
to take us on the mission field here and walk in Him in a totally different way. Because you can walk with Him in a way where you do not fear. You do not fear. And uh, another time I remember I was down there and we were in, this, in the jungle and we were in this thatched roof uh, house, no bigger, maybe a little bit bigger than this room, and uh, dirt floor, and here's your bed, you know, and you, you lay down in the thing, and in the, the middle of the thatched, what's holding the whole thing up is a tree, the tree growing up through the middle. And all night long, well, for the first night, all I heard crawling above me were critters. I don't know what they were, but they were crawling. After a while, you have to either say, okay, Lord, I can't function down here if I don't sleep. You have to rest in God. And, and that's it. So there's all kinds of things. These people live like that all the time. See, we, we don't realize some of the things that go on in the world. We get upset because one little thing doesn't go right. You know? And we're all on this big spiral, you know, falling down for the big crash. You know, we might be experiencing things we never did, and I always say that because we don't know. But let me get back to what we were saying. Stretch forth your hands, and don't say, I will never. Because if you say, I will never, then that means that you might not be able to have the work done in you the Lord desires. So you might not never say, I'll never do this, or I'll never do that, or I'll never... I don't like saying any of that because the Lord will call me on the carpet and say, okay, you who don't want to go out of the country, okay, there you go. I say, okay, Lord, let's go. And I had some of the, the greatest times on the mission field. The, the greatest experiences of my life sometimes, uh, you know, in the Lord were, some of them were on the mission field. So, oh, we don't want to do that because... You know, it's all, all by itself, all right, what we want. So, okay, let's go to verse 11. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, uh, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. Now, if you go back to chapter 17 and verse 14, it talks about those that are with the Lord. He says they are called, chosen, and faithful. So you see that same characteristic is to be in the Christian, faithful. You see that 17.4? And that is a reflection of the work of the Lord because you see that in him. He is called faithful and true. And this is very an interesting statement here. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. He makes war in righteousness, and he judges in righteousness. And we hear that, but he makes war in, in, in righteousness, or through righteousness. Verse 12, his eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a, a, a name written that no man knew but himself. So Jesus, the name we use, he has a name that no man knows. There will be this name that man has never blasphemed, never blasphemed, and never will. 
He's the only one that knows that name and probably will reveal that name at some future time. So there is that which is there in him that no one knows. Verse 13. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Uh, and the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses. I always wondered about that. We're going to have to learn how to horseback ride? I'm not real fond of horses. Oh, you're destined to win. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, it talks also about, in, uh, later on in a chapter, it talks about those that, that died on the, on the battlefield, basically, Armageddon, that uh, it says that he destroyed the horses, that he calls the fowl of heaven to come and, and uh, eat the, uh, the carcasses of kings and all those and horses, which, you know, if the Bible says it, I believe it. Now, if that means literal horse, it may not. I don't know. But after World War II, they start to disband the use of horses in warfare. World War II was the last war that they had that because of conventional warfare. So either this doesn't mean horses or it means horses and there's going to be horses, which very possible, you know, China, you know, or whatever, whatever countries. There's countries that still use horses, but not <clears throat> on the battlefield. But if the Bible says it, I believe it. Now, as far as, I don't know, are there horses in heaven? I don't know. What are we going to ride? Little things to think about. I don't have the answers. Don't ask me what color they are. I don't know. Don't know. Verse 15. And, and out of his mouth goeth a sharp two edged sword. Now turn to, um, well, let me just read that ver whole verse. That with it he should smite the nations. Now you realize that, that there's not going to be this literal sword with a two edged point, you know, size coming out of Jesus' mouth. You know, it's not the picture of a big sword there, right? You do know that, right? That's not a literal sword, okay? It's talking about what? His word. Okay. Smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the wine winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Now, turn to Hebrews. Hold your place there. Verse 3 of chapter 1. Now, this is speaking about Jesus, uh, verse 2, the son, his son, meaning Jesus, who being in the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. Uh, it says here, upholding, and that word there means to cause to continue by sustaining. He upholds, now, this is what it's, the Bible is saying. He upholds all things, or he is holding all things, holding up all things. So when you look up into the heavens and you see all the planets, the stars, he is upholding or holding all things by the word of his power. So the word of God has unrealized power as far as we know. That unrealized power is going to be demonstrated or brought forth whenever he comes back 
And he is going to speak a word, and it's not going to be like anything we've ever seen or heard. How, I don't know how you can do that. I mean, I don't understand how the word has power over the physical. But God created the worlds and everything, the light and the darkness, through his word. His word. He spoke it into existence. I mean, how, how does he do that? But that very, very word of God coming forth from the mouth of Jesus is going to be enough to smite or defeat all the armies of the world. That's quite something. Talk about powerful word. No wonder every, you know, in heaven you see these pictures of you know, uh, the, the, the four living creatures and, and all those, the 24 elders. What do they do? They, they all, you see a constant, they're falling down on their faces worshiping God. And they, you says this, and they hear this, this, and they fall down. Well, see, we don't really relate to that. We relate to these words here. But you know that there are more words of God that aren't written in this book. There are other words. I mean, he's not going to come out of heaven here riding on a white horse and say, okay, now let me quote you a verse from the Bible. I don't think so. He is going to speak whatever he speaks, and that is going to have so much power, it's just going to slay them. How do you slay someone with your words? Well, it's probably not very hard. If God can create with his word, why can't he destroy with his word? He can do what he wants. I, mean, I don't know if you ever think of things like that, and my mind goes different, I guess, than most people. <laughs> I look at these things and I start thinking about them. Wow, to me, that's incredible. He upholds or holds everything up by the word of his power or, or, his, or his word. I don't know. But there is unrealized power there. And then it says here that he, can, he will control them, as the Amplified says, he will control them, the nations, uh, with a staff of iron. He's going to tell them what to do. That's what that means. He's going to dictate what should be done, not the nations. Mm. Okay. Now, I want to just give this to you. What verse are we on here again? Okay, verse 16. Let's just read down here. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun or in the sun's light, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that ye may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of them that sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the king, kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. Now this is, I believe, talking about the gathering at the battle of Armageddon. So there they are. And Jesus is not going to mince words. He's going to speak what he speaks. He's going to do what it's going to do. And in verse 20, And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, now listen to this, which, with which he deceived them 
which had received the mark of the beast. Now, who was it that the false prophet deceived? No. What's it say in the verse? Who did the false prophet deceived? deceive there? Those that received the mark. They're going to be the ones that will be in this deception. And them that worshipped his image. These both, meaning uh, the beast and the false prophet, were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him which sat upon the horse. The rest of them were slain. They were killed, physically killed. You know, that's the loving Jesus that people talk about. Well, he, he's a loving God, yes. But when it comes to executing judgment, he doesn't, you know, stop. He does what he's going to do. He executed judgment with the Pharisees, if you'll remember. It's the same Jesus. <coughs> which sword proceedeth out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. Okay, let's stop there. And uh, are there any questions? Yes. I have a question. I asked this of you before, but I didn't have my notebook, and there's a reason why. <laughs> but, uh, who's that now? Forgive me. Is this going to be pertaining to what we're teaching? No. No, that's what I mean. Okay, if you want to ask that question, you can ask it later. I'll be willing to, you know, listen. But I mean, pertaining to what was taught, Revelation 19 here. Any questions? What was that just from? Well, I missed it. It seems we're already following you. 19, 19, 21, because I write this stuff down. Yeah, 19, 19, 20, and 21. Thank you. Now, I just want to just go over this very quickly, just to give this to you. Um, because I just looked at it very briefly, but just in verse 1 of chapter 20, just look at this for a minute. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit, and a great chain is in his hand. So you see here in this verse, it talks about the bottomless pit. Now in the Greek, that is... Abusos, or we, we get the word abyss. That's what it means, abyss. And uh, that word there means depthless, depthless, or the abode of, of evil spirits, as they say. Now, in the Bible, you will see this. The word hell is mentioned in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And, of course, I looked at this before very briefly, and this is like a whole study in and of itself, it probably would be good to look at this someday. But there are four, at least four words. And if you can't, the one, this one here, bottomless pit. Now, don't get confused. I'm just going to tell you this, and then I'll, I'll bring all this thing back together in a second. The word bottomless pit is translating a Greek word abyss. Okay? Uh, hell in the Old Testament, was called Sheol, S-H-O-E-L, the place of the dead. Not, not the grave, but the place of those who have departed from this life. Okay, Sheol, the underworld. Then you have, in the New Testament, Gienna. That's translated hell also in, in uh, the Bible, and that's the name of the place of everlasting punishment of the dead. Then you have the word Hades. Hades is the place or the state of departed souls, be it unrighteous or righteous. Okay. 
Then you have the word Tartarus. Has anyone ever heard of that one? Have you? Very good. Tartarus. And that is, remember in Second Peter it says, cast them into hell where they are kept in, in chained, chains of darkness, talking about the angels that left their first estate. That actually is the Greek word Tartarus. All these different words are referring to something a little different. And the translators, I believe, they looked at that and they said, if we put all this in here, everyone will be totally confused. So I agree with them. So they just translated it hell throughout the Bible. But hell is just not one thing. It's multiple. It's, there's different things. Hell is like a generic form, a generic word for all this. But to really know what's going on, you have to actually get in there and look at it and study. But it's not really, I mean, I guess it really doesn't really matter. It doesn't impact your life because you're not going to any of those places anyway. Huh. Yes. You want to be deceived in my way? Yes. I'm far from it. Oh, that's okay. You're not an interruption most of the time. <laughs> no, I'll just tell you, put your hand on. I like that one. That's what I do. So if it's a bad time, I don't entertain questions. So. But anyway, I wanted to show you that because that's what they did. They, they, uh, in case, because I'll tell you, you talk to some people, like if you talk to the Jehovah Witnesses, they'll bring some of these different things up. Oh, this means the grave, that means hell. But there are various words in the Old Testament and in the New Testament that have specific meanings. And, of course, you know, whenever they talked about them, they used their language and they knew what they were. But it's all lost on us because all we know is hell. That's the only English, English word we know. So if you ever want to do a study sometime, maybe you could uh, look into that. Something to pass your time if you ever get bored. And when you do a real good study, then you'll say, what do I need to do this for anyway? Well, that's better than doing something else, right? Okay. Um, but anyway, let's, don't sit down, sit down. We're not leaving yet, just relax. Okay. Revelation... No, we'll pass that. Okay, the bottomless pit. I just want to show you this, and then we'll stop, because that's in uh, verse 1 here. Um, another meaning I found in another uh, word study book, it says immeasurable depth is what that means, bottomless pit. So if you ever wonder what's the bottomless pit, what does it mean, what, what's with that? I mean, do you look in it and you don't see a bottom, or...? I mean, has it got a hole in the top and bottom? What's it mean? There's no bottom. How can it be no bottom? Everything has a bottom, right? <laughs> Apparently not. It's good. <laughs> there, this might be one exception to the rule. Okay, let's just look at, I was going to look at a couple of verses, but let's just look at one And in Psalm 40. I, I, I thought, when I was a young Christian, <laughs> I thought, well, okay, you picture this, this globe, right? Right in front of you. And if you, you cut a hole from the top of it to the bottom and you take you know, the whole thing out, there, there would be no bottom to it. It would be bottomless. <laughs> that, you know, but that's not what it means, by the way. <laughs> Psalm 40. Psalm 40, verse 2. Now, this is um, a familiar portion of Scripture. 
David says this. Now, David, we know he went through some things in his life, didn't he? Remember when Saul's trying to kill him and he chases him all over the, the country and what have you, and, and David ends up in the caves of Abdullam? And he, he's really quite overwhelmed with life. You know, he, he thought he was going to, you know, ascend and God has him in a, in a cave. You know, he's on the run constantly. No peace. Doesn't know if his life is ever going to change. Doesn't know if it's ever going to get any better. Doesn't know if anything's ever going to be the way it really should be. And so he says this in praise to God for what God had done. He says, he brought, he brought me up also out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock and established my goings. Now, this bottomless pit that you see here in Revelation, it says here that the Lord will take the devil and he will put him there and he will see, put a seal upon him. How does it read? Um, he will shut him up. That doesn't mean shut his mouth up. It means he will seal him up. Okay. Now, a pit is a prison. And actually, the word, if you look at the word, it's dealing with a hole in the ground, a well, or a cistern, you know, a pit. It becomes a prison, a place of confinement, a prison for Satan at that time. Now, relating to what David says here about him being in a pit, there is a prison of one's own carnal nature that can be like a pit, a person can move in a way in their life and, and follow their carnal nature and go down and down and down and down into what you see in the Bible sometimes referred to as a pit. How far can the carnal nature take a person? How far down? Well, you can see some people, that they've gone down quite a ways, and you can see other people have gone down even further. Some people, their lives are, so, you know, because of their decisions and you know, their carnal nature dictating everything, and it's brought them into this prison, this pit, a place where there is no hope at all. And so it says here that he's going to, in Revelation 20, verse 3, he's going to shut him up in the bottomless pit that he should not deceive the nations no more. See, that which is in Satan that causes, how can I say this? He, his spirit affects people, and it will affect them in a way that if a person gives themselves over to Satan, their life will begin to go down and down and down and down and down, and they'll be in a pit. So his spirit affects them that way. His, his spirit affects the nations of the world, that's why they rise up against Jesus. And whenever he takes them and he puts, them, puts him in the bottomless pit, he, he shuts him up, no longer will he be able to affect men or nations with his spirit any longer. That's shut up. That's the purpose behind the bottomless pit, that he should deceive the nations no more until the thousand years are finished. 
So the bottomless pit basically is a place where he is shut up. So now he can't affect people like he has been. That, that effect will not be there from him. It will be stopped completely. So he's put in this, in this pit. And I, I believe the reason why it's bottomless is probably, now I don't know this for sure, but probably because there is no depth to which Satan is, is going to stop. He's going to continue going down and down and down. It's going to be bottomless for him. So a person, for example, who's a Christian, um, how does it say? That, um, anyway, you, you are to walk in a way where you become more and more and more Christ-like, that you have more and more of the light, okay? And your life will get better and better and better. Where, where the evil is opposite, it goes in, the, in a different direction, a person can move in, in, the, in evil and in their carnality and continue to go in the other direction and go as far, I guess, however, I don't know, however far a person can go. But Satan, I don't believe there's going to be any end to that because he's just going to continue to get more and more evil. But anyway, that's just my view of it. I don't know. Basically, it's talking about him not being able to affect others any longer. He's shut up and he can't do that because remember, whenever he's loose, what happens? When he's loosed out of the bottomless pit after the thousand years, what happens? He goes out and does what? No. He's, he goes out and he deceives the nations again. See, so that doesn't change in him. It's always going to be that. So that's why it says here that he's going to be sealed up for that time. That's not before. And that, after all that, then he's thrown in the lake of fire, never again to affect men like that, ever. Okay, let's stop there. Rivers of living water.